Welcome to Church in the Basement, where we seek to see God more clearly and to live a life loving God and loving others. Hey everyone, I know it's Wednesday, not Tuesday, but yesterday got a little bit wild, so here we are on a Wednesday. And before we get started... I want to say happy birthday, Mom. It's my mother's birthday, and she is a incredible woman. Mom, I'm praying that your year is filled with God and his presence, and that it would just be a year to remember. I think it already is, um, but yeah, in all the best ways. Love you, Mom. I am kind of stoked today because it's overcast, and the last little bit has been pretty warm which makes me think about, man, maybe what summers will look like, spike ball, barbecuing. For those of you in the encounter community, you know how we roll over here at the community house. I'm looking forward to those times. But, you know, I was explaining to my daughter last night that we have AC and not everybody has AC. And she goes, but we have AC. And I'm like, yeah, and it's a blessing. It's a gift from God. But Kim has turned it on over the weekend, and she keeps hovering her hand over the vent saying, it's on, I hear it, but I don't feel any cold air. So maybe we'll have to call somebody out, um, or maybe we'll just do the box fan thing. For those of you who do the box fan thing, we're there with you. It's hard to regulate temp, but summer is good. Spring is in full swing, but looking forward to summer and the hangs that will come then. Hopefully, we will be through this whole pandemic and get to spend some time. And I just want to encourage you all to, we're almost there. I know there's talk of extensions and that kind of a thing, but we're almost there. You guys are doing great. Um, We're all still in this together. I love you. Keep going strong. We're going to make it. And with that, we are in John 8. So last week, we were in John 7, sort of spent some time in some different portions there. But we got all the way through it, except for verse 53. And there's something interesting about this text that we'll talk about, but first, let's read through it. So John 7, verse 53, it says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This, they said, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. 
Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. So a powerful piece of scripture, a powerful text. But before we get into it, I I discovered a lot over um, digging into the scripture and meditating on it and even digging into a lot of commentaries. This text is actually not technically a part of John's gospel. See, the oldest manuscripts do not include this portion of scripture. And I'm talking about chapter 7, verse 14. 53, verse 53, um, through 11, through 811. This whole portion of scripture is not actually in the earliest manuscripts and has been added at some other time. So most biblical scholars will say this isn't technically a part of John's gospel. Some would even say it's not even a part of the Bible. But all would agree that it is an inspired piece of scripture, that is that it is historically correct, and that it fits within the context, within just the whole flow of this story. It really fits in like a puzzle piece, but technically it's not supposed to be here. So what do we do with this scripture then, if that's the case? Well, uh, I was just talking with a friend about this piece of scripture that a lot of people try to use it as like a basis to prove a point in like a, a debate, right? And I know a lot of you don't like to debate scripture. Let's just come to Jesus and and experience the truth and let it transform our lives. But a lot of people, when they're trying to argue a point about the Bible or about who God is or about the way we should interact with one another as human beings, try to use this piece of scripture as like a point to make. Now, I would say you should probably not do that in general. We should probably be leading people to the heart of God, right? But we can't just draw these conclusive points out of a piece of scripture like this that a lot of biblical scholars would say, hey, technically, it's not in here. The early church added it for some reason, maybe because of its historical accuracy or whatever it may be, but they even believe that John maybe didn't even write it. There are a few cues like the way he, he, the words he uses to say the scribes and the Pharisees. It just isn't within the flow of the way he writes, but still a powerful piece of scripture. And I think there's some, definitely some things that can be gleaned from this scripture and learned from this scripture. I just had to put that disclaimer at the front. Um, But really with this piece of scripture, it it should be treated just like anything else that is filtered through scripture. We see that the character of God is consistent in this. The way he relates with the people within this story is consistent with the way Jesus would. And it lines up with the message of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So what can we glean from this text? Again, not trying to prove any points, but how can we meditate on this text and sort of draw closer to the heart of God, draw deeper into the heart of God, experience the spirit of God, the person of the spirit, and understand the work of Jesus a little bit more? Because again, that's the point of the gospel of John, that we would 
see Jesus for who he is, see God for who he is. So at the beginning, it says he, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives when everybody else went home. Now, the Mount of Olives is very significant in that Jesus went there many times to spend time with God. There's, there's the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the base of the Mount of Olives, where they, they believe Jesus went to pray very often. That is where he was betrayed. That is where he ascended into heaven. And that is where it says he will come back and it will be split in two. So the Mount of Olives is very significant. But after he was at the Mount of Olives, he went down to the temple. And we learn later in this chapter that he is in the court of women. So everyone would have been able to come and see him. And we have to remember that the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths has just ended. So um, there are still a lot of people around who are sort of tarrying in the area who haven't left yet that Jesus is teaching there in the temple. And then we get into like the thick drama, right? The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And they even go as far as to say she was caught in the act. Now, there's something very fishy about this. Because in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 is where the law that says, hey, if people are caught in the act of adultery or committing adultery, if there's evidence against them, they should be stoned, right? And the law was created to basically bring health to the people of Israel. Now, how did they catch them in the act? That's a little bit fishy. The fact that it's supposed to be the couple that it is engaging in adultery is guilty of this crime. Where is the dude? Um, did he just get away scot-free or was he one of the buddies of the Pharisees? I don't, I don't know. Like something is fishy about this. And we know that the scribes and the Pharisees were looking to basically set Jesus up, trying to take Jesus out of the picture, right? So there's something wrong here. And then we see that they literally said this to test Jesus. Because if Jesus were to say, yes, let's stone the woman, he would have fallen out of the graces of the quote-unquote common people of the time. And then if he would have said, no, we can't stone the woman, then he would be breaking the law and they could arrest him, right? So he was sort of in between a rock and a hard place, stuck in this position. But of course, Jesus knew all this. And with great insight, what does he do? Um, he leans down and he draws on the ground with his finger. Kind of an odd thing to do in the midst of this, right? But this calls back to a number of different scriptures. I'm going to give you a few different theories of what it could be pointing back to. In Exodus 31, it talks about Moses bringing the tablets down, I believe it's right at the end of Exodus 31, bringing the tablets down that contain the law. And it says that they were written on the tablets by the finger of God. So maybe Jesus was writing something alluding to Exodus, talking about how the law was written by his fingers, right? Or there's a a portion of Zechariah that Zechariah 17, 13, I think, um, where it says that those who forsakes 
God for who has who have forsaken God and turned away from him, their names will be written in the earth. And maybe Jesus was writing out their names. Who knows? Like, we don't know. This is all speculation. So maybe he was writing their names, sort of calling them out. Hey, I'm writing you in the ground. You know, Zechariah. Who knows? Maybe he wrote Zechariah 17 and then starts writing their names. <laughs> like, that would be really eerie, right? Um, you would be wigged out. So then uh, the the coolest theory that I've heard, um, which a couple of my buddies, they really cling to this theory. Uh, it's in Daniel, I believe Daniel 5. It's Belshazzar's feast, right? So the Belshazzar is the leader that has sort of occupied Israel. Um, he's he's not uh, Jewish. He's, he's not an Israeli. But they have occupied Israel and, you know, bad stuff is happening. So, so at this feast, this hand shows up and writes on the wall, um, these specific words, mene, mene, tekel, parasin, I think is, are, are the words that are being said on there. And what they mean is really, really significant. It's really cool. So it's the days of your kingdom have been numbered. You have been weighed and found wanting, and your kingdom has been divided and given over to your enemies. So if Jesus knelt down in the dirt, I'm just imagining this, and he writes like mene mene tekel parasim, and I'm butchering that, but like, and they knew what that was. Like that would be an extreme call out. And it's kind of exciting. You know, Jesus, we all on some level like trash talk, right? So Jesus leaning down and sort of writing this out, it would be like a huge call out, like, what the heck are you guys doing? But we don't know. We don't know what what he's writing in the ground, but we know what he says. Oh, and another point about this writing in the ground is that this is the only time recorded that we see Jesus writing anything. And he writes in the dirt. Like we have no way to preserve that or know what he wrote. I love that mystery. Jesus, you're so mysterious. Um, yet you've revealed yourself to us. I love it so much. I'm just delighting in him right now. Um, I love, he stands up, he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, when he says this, I I can imagine they immediately maybe go to, again, that's all conspiracy, but maybe they go to this thought that, man, we are just trying to pin this guy. We are guilty in this very act. Maybe they're thinking about something they've done in secret, Maybe they're thinking about the inner workings of their heart, what Paul would call the flesh. Who knows what they were thinking, but what we do know, as Jesus continues to write in the dirt, starting with the oldest, which is really interesting because they say the older you get, the wiser you get, that there's this difference between knowledge and wisdom, that knowledge is knowing something and wisdom is this applied knowledge, that this knowledge has been applied or experienced in some way in your life so it becomes wisdom right that maybe the older know that they are guilty have wrestled with the fact that man i cannot throw this stone and so they walk away first but those who are younger more prideful more more man 
feeling invincible in the world, maybe it takes them a little longer to come to the conclusions of how they might have sin in their life. It's a little easier maybe for the younger scribes and Pharisees to justify their actions, but they end up coming around and leaving as well. And in a way, Jesus is sort of revealing the darkest parts of their life. He's revealing their selfishness and their sin. And then he turns to the woman after he stands up and he says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, probably terrified, humiliated, being thrown into this crowd, she says, No one, Lord. And I think this is significant in the midst of her caught in the act, caught in the sin. Everyone knows she's guilty, being humiliated in front of everyone. She sees Jesus as Lord, seeing that he took this other way, that he was presented with two options and he created a third in only the way that Jesus could. He saved her, not because she wasn't guilty, but because he is Lord. And she viewed him differently. She saw him as Lord. And at this, this confession of Jesus as Lord in her life, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Jesus didn't pass by this woman's sin. He recognized her sin. He said, sin no more. You have sinned but turn away from your sin. Sin no more. He's calling her to repentance. So very graciously, Jesus goes and he calls out the, the very ones who came to judge this woman. He judges them with a simple question of search yourselves and see that there is no darkness in you. And if there's no darkness in you, you are free to judge her. And in this woman, he said, I see your darkness. Turn from it. Turn from it. I don't know who you relate to in the story. Me personally, I relate to both. Um, but in this text, I think what we have to glean from it is Jesus is about to declare himself this within the I am statements within the Gospel of John. He's about to declare himself, say, I am the light of the world. And he calls out the darkness in both these parties. I think he's revealing to even the crowd that's around them, the woman involved, the judges involved, the scribes and the Pharisees. He's saying, we all have this darkness. You all have this darkness in you. But I do not. I do not have darkness in me but I will take on your darkness so that you can turn from your darkness, so that you can live life without darkness in you. I am going to conquer it so that you can live. And when we look at a piece of scripture like this, even with the, the you know, speculation that maybe this isn't a part of scripture, I think this falls perfectly in line with the gospel, that as we see ourselves in this story, 
as we see ourselves as the judgers, that maybe there's someone in our life that we've been judging, that we've been hard on, that we haven't had grace and mercy for, that we are not without sin, that we are called to come and edify and exhort that person and walk with them in their sin and turn them to Jesus, that that maybe conviction is a part of that, that as they come to Jesus, that they feel convicted for the things that they do, but you are not the one to necessarily stir up conviction, but you bring them to Jesus and call out the things in their life and say, hey, you know, Jesus can heal this in you. Jesus is the light. You have darkness. I have darkness. We all have darkness in us, but Jesus is the light. Would you come to him? And you may see the way him working it out in our our lives as only two options, but Jesus can create a third and he can powerfully and lovingly turn you from your darkness to the light and that you would walk in the light of Christ with the power of his spirit flowing through you and from you. If you relate with the woman that you have been caught in sin and you feel broken That's the work of the cross, that he came and he did the work so that you could have light in your life, that he has come so that you can walk in the freedom of just turning from your darkness. Just make make a point right now, Jesus, would you help me to turn from the sin in my life, the things that I recognize I have been called out, I've been thrown in the midst of the crowd, I, I am broken, I am weary, Jesus says, I am here, I see it, and I do not condemn you. Turn from it and walk in the light. Let's spend some time meditating on this, asking Jesus to come in and bring light into our darkness. I love you guys. Be blessed. And we'll see you on Friday.